On a rainy day in October of 1999, the Queensland Star dropped anchor just off Pitcairn Island. It was there to resupply the small British territory and, due to a variety of factors, in that year this was only their second resupply, which meant that it carried an enormous quantity of goods. Unloading efforts were further complicated by the ship having to anchor around the back end of the island, far from the landing in Bounty Bay, due to the particularly rough nature of the seas at that time. Beyond all that cargo though, the Queensland Star carried a passenger, Constable Gail Cox from Kent, England. After having worked as a visiting police officer on Pitcairn two years prior, she was there again for a short six-week visit to check up on the island and continue her work in training the local police officer who, at most times, was the only law enforcement officer on the island. Cox seemed to be well-liked with the community and certainly made an effort to engage with them. For example, she ran a holiday poster competition with the kids. She worked a lot with the kids, in fact, to educate them on right and wrong and distributed pamphlets to them on the nature of consent and abuse. Those pamphlets would go on to kick off Pitcairn's darkest decade. On one of her 90 days there, Constable Cox was approached by a local teen girl. This girl confided in her something that confirmed a narrative that Cox and other officials from abroad had heard rumblings of for years. The teen girl said that she had been raped at various points by two men on the island. She had read Constable Cox's pamphlet and realized that what was happening was not normal or okay. Even worse, this girl said that she was far from the only person on the island to suffer those tragedies. Officer Cox was taken aback by such a serious allegation in a place that, on the surface, seemed so idyllic, and she had no choice but to report it to the British authorities. This revelation sparked an inquiry into the goings-on on the island in an investigation by the police codenamed Operation Unique. They investigated the initial charge and found that the 15-year-old girl who'd filed the complaint was correct in saying that she was not at all alone in her experience. In fact, as the interviews went on, the police were met with the conclusion that not only was sex with underage girls common on Pitcairn, it was expected. Most birth records confirmed that women in Pitcairn started having children around the time they were 12 or 13, and that, for the most part, this did not phase most Pitcairners. They found out that it was, in many ways, a tradition for the men on the island to, as they called it, break in the girls once they were around 12 years old. The police interviewed every woman who lived on the island over the past 20 years, many of whom now lived abroad, but the results were the same. There didn't seem to be a single woman on the island who hadn't been sexually abused as a child. Moreover, the men on the island who were interviewed admitted to having sexual experiences with girls in that age range, and it emerged that the locals considered the age of consent to be either 12 or 15 years old, depending on who and when you asked. Sex with a minor was in fact a crime under Pitcairn's laws, but its punishment was a mere 100 days in jail. The bigger issue, though, was that all crimes on Pitcairn had a statute of limitation of just six months. Many of these alleged crimes had happened decades earlier. Regardless of all of that, British law took precedent, and according to British law, this was illegal and prosecutable. There was, though, a question of whether the islanders even knew that British law had applied to them. This line of questioning was supported by the fact that it was nearly a century earlier when the island's systematic moral lapses had first been reported to the British government. This instance in 1999 wasn't even the first time that decade when an incident on the island had been reported. The government's sudden focus on Pitcairn's crimes were quite clearly a change in policy after a century 
of apathy. Regardless, with the government's newfound interest in Pitcairn, Operation Unique yielded charges of 21 counts of rape, 41 counts of indecent assault, and two counts of gross indecency. Among the charge was former mayor Steve Christian and his son Randy, both direct descendants of bounty mutineer Fletcher Christian. The investigation, though, was, comparatively, the easy part. The more difficult aspect would be successfully trying the men in a place that didn't believe that what they were doing was wrong and had never dealt with a trial of this scale before. In 2002, the Queen in Council attempted to simplify this by making an order that allowed for a trial around the charges to be conducted using Pitcairn and British law while physically being held in New Zealand. However, an appeal soon followed, and in 2002, these seven men accused of rape won the right to be tried on Pitcairn Island. Welcome back to Extremities. This is episode five of six about Pitcairn. If you haven't listened to the earlier episodes, you should go back and do that now as they give crucial context to today's. We'll get back to Pitcairn, but first, I need to thank one of the sponsors that made this show possible. In the first episodes of this season, you heard the story of the mutiny on the bounty. I've recommended this before, but I'll once again suggest that, if you haven't already, you listen to the full audiobook of The Mutiny on the Bounty on Audible. It goes into a far deeper level of detail on the story, and you'll soon see why The Mutiny became so infamous. It's a truly captivating story. For a limited time in the month of July, if you're a member of Amazon Prime, you can get your first three months of Audible for the price of one. That comes out to just $4.95 per month. Audible has an enormous library of fantastic audiobooks, which are great to listen to while running, doing the dishes, commuting to work, or whenever, and you can get started listening to The Mutiny on the Bounty or really anything by signing up at audible.com ext or texting ext to 500-500. Once again, that's audible.com ext or text ext to 500-500. Pitcairn's total population at the time of the trial was 47, not adequate to complete the proceedings alone, especially considering there was really nobody with legal experience, let alone a local judge, so creative solutions were required. No trial like this had ever been held on Pitcairn. Nobody had really ever been prosecuted under British law, so they were quite literally building the legal system as they went. Three judges, several legal counsels, and a handful of press, all from New Zealand, traveled to the island to oversee the trial. These judges were essentially hired by the British government exclusively for this trial and, despite originating from an entirely different country, a special legal arrangement was made for them to have jurisdiction on Pitcairn. Plaintiffs who no longer lived on the island, which represented a considerable number of them, would share their testimonies via satellite video link while locals were forced to turn in their guns, or as the locals called them, muskets, ostensibly to prevent a hunting accident while more outsiders were on the island. The trial, as it was referred to, was actually multiple trials happening concurrently. There was, of course, no courthouse, so they were all held in the community hall overseen by the panel of New Zealand judges. Earlier, when the judges and attorneys and press who had made the trip arrived in Bounty Bay, the longboats that came to retrieve them were manned by some of these same men who were serving as defendants. Trial or not, life went on on Pitcairn Island. These outsiders wore formal wear, suits and robes and legal regalia, while well, the locals came in what they had, and sometimes that meant t-shirts and bare feet. Some defendants apparently dressed up, as they described it, by putting on flip-flops. Aside from the locals who were testifying, there were no islanders present at the makeshift courthouse. The jury was not of their peers, as the entire island was more or less related, and it was therefore determined that nobody was unbiased, and the public seating was therefore totally bare. 
That's because most of the locals on Pitcairn were publicly against the trial and thought of the entire thing as farcical, at least when they went on record anyway. In fact, a group of the Pitcairn women met with the six reporters as soon as they arrived on the island and insisted to them that, while underage sex did happen, it was always consensual and a part of Polynesian culture. Some elder women did admit that men had tried to force themselves on them, but that they had simply ran off and didn't allow it to happen. However, the reports of many victims, widespread in age and now widespread in location too as many left the island to continue their schoolings and never came back, were too numerous to brush off. The admittance of the locals that underage girls were approached sexually by the men was also a confirmation rather than a reassuring denial. Of the 24 women who gave their statements to the police, only seven ended up testifying. Not a single one of the men ended up taking the stand. The trial formally opened on September 30th, 2004, nearly five years after the original accusation. The following Pitcairn men stood trial, in alphabetical order, Len Carlisle Brown, 78, Mayor Steve Christian's father-in-law, Dave Brown, 50, Len Carlisle Brown's son, Dennis Ray Christian, 47, Pitcairn's postmaster, Randy Christian, 30, Mayor Steve's son and chairman of the island's internal committee, Mayor Steve Christian himself, 53, direct descendants of Fletcher Christian and the most powerful man on the island, Jay Warren, 48, former magistrate of Pitcairn Island from 1990 to 1999 until his position was removed and replaced with that of mayor, Carlisle Terry Young, 46, a descendant of Bounty Crew member Ned Young. A few days later, on October 4, 2004, the first statement, a written one from a woman whose identity was kept protected, was read to the court. In this statement, the woman stated that Steve Christian had raped her when she was 12 in the year of 1972. She accused Mayor Christian of doing the same to several young girls on the island over the years. Another woman told a similar story about Mayor Christian that same day. Mayor Christian pled not guilty. On October 5, 2004, the following day, Dennis Christian, the postmaster of the island, pled guilty to two counts of sexual assault of a 12-year-old girl in 1972 when he was 16 and one count of indecent assault against a separate 12-year-old girl in the 80s. The fourth charge against postmaster Christian had been withdrawn. Christian was remanded on bail. On October 6, 2004, prosecutors presented evidence in the form of a video interview with Steve Christian. The interview had been conducted back in 2000 by police in New Zealand. In it, while Christian absolutely denied that he'd raped anyone, he did say it was possible that he had had consensual sexual relationships with two girls under the age of 16, but then he couldn't be sure of the exact details. Steve Christian pled not guilty. On October 7, 2004, defendants Jay Warren and Terry Young were called into the courtroom. Warren stood accused by a 33-year-old woman who was submitting her testimony over satellite video that she had been assaulted by Warren in 1983 when she was 12 years old. At the time, she was body surfing in the ocean and was able to kick Warren off with her rubber flippers and escape. The plaintiff stated that she hadn't told anyone on the island what happened because the culture prevented anyone from feeling safe enough to talk about anything personal. Warren denied the charges. This same plaintiff said she had been groped by Terry Young when she was 10 years old. Young was charged with one count of rape and seven counts of indecent exposure to girls on the island over a period of two decades. Allegedly, Young had previously admitted to various assaults and molestations to the police, but at the time of the trial, Young denied all charges. On October 8, 2004, Mayor Christian's brother-in-law, Dave Brown, pled guilty to two counts of assault and a charge of molestation that had taken place in the mid-1980s. 
Brown had told police during an interview in 2004 that he had been in love with a 13-year-old girl at the time. He was, however, already then married with kids and well past 30. After their first couple sexual encounters, Brown claims that the 13-year-old girl enjoyed herself and pursued a more consistent sexual relationship with him. They met in secret about once a month, but on the island, news travels relatively fast and easy. Brown's wife confronted him, and so did the girl's mother and the island's police officer. Brown stayed away from the girl for half a year, however, they continued meeting and having sex after that. Brown claims neither party wanted the affair to end. This continued until the girl turned 16 and moved away from Pitcairn Island. Brown went on to explain that it wasn't at all abnormal for grown men to have sexual relationships with underage girls, as it had been done with every generation before his own with no protest. However, Brown admitted that he regretted it now, saying that he understood that what was going on at the island wasn't right. At the start of the investigation, the women who had been the young girl from Brown's confession was one of the accusers, but withdrew her charges before the trial started. Brown pled not guilty to the rest of the charges against him, of which there were 12. Throughout the whole process of this trial, life went on on the island. The men roamed free, even working various jobs paid for by the British government. Steve Christian still worked as mayor, receiving a salary originating from the very government pursuing a case against him. Really the only thing that was different was that the island's population temporarily expanded by more than 50% with the addition of up to 25 outsiders at times. Tensions were apparently high as many of the outsiders did not hide their contempt for the islanders. Leaked emails revealed an attitude of hostility and disdain against all the islanders, not just those on trial. Meanwhile, a non-stop procession of boats, chartered by the British, went to and from Auckland carrying people and supplies. There was also certainly a lot more attention placed on them, a level that the island had not received in a long while. It was quite the change from the normally peaceful and hidden Pitcairn life. After a few days off, the trial picked back up again on October 12th, with more testimony against Mayor Christian and separately Terry Young. These testimonies all told similar stories of young girls around the age of 12 being sexually abused in the community and too afraid to tell anyone about it. The women who testified all spoke of Pitcairn's culture, how no one would have thought anything of it, that the quote breaking in of young girls was expected, and that they'd be forced to go along with their lives and even interact with their abusers even if they told their parents, some of whom were also being accused of the same crimes. By October 21st, the defense had presented all that they could. The end of the trial centered around the allegations against Mayor Steve Christian's son, Randy. Of all the men, Randy Christian was under the most scrutiny as his incidents occurred more recently than the others. Christian stood accused of five rape charges and seven assault charges ranging from 1988 to 1999. Christian admitted to having a consensual sexual relationship with a girl who was around 11. The girl in question was now a young woman of 20 and happened to be the girl who instigated the start of Operation Unique. The defense produced love letters from the girl to Randy Christian from the time they were younger in an attempt to prove a consensual relationship between the two. The defense framed the young woman as a jilted teenager with a crush and a woman scorned for Christian having left her on the island when he first traveled to Norfolk. The prosecutor refuted the evidence, reminding the judges that Pitcairn had only a few men and that even if the girl did have an innocent childhood crush, Christian took advantage of that at the time as he was 10 years her senior. On October 24th, the court reached a decision. Jay Warren was the only defendant of the seven to be entirely acquitted. 
he walked out a free man. The others were convicted on 35 different charges. The judges stated that they'd reached their decisions based on the nature that the girls in question were too, quote, young, naive, and vulnerable for any kind of sexual relationship to be truly consensual. Of these six convicted, only two, Dennis Christian and Dave Brown, indicated any sense of remorse. Prior to sentencing, the defense threw themselves at the mercy of the court, reminding the justices that the island's survival depended on the few able-bodied men and that sentencing the convicted to harsh terms would also be punishing the island. On October 29, 2004, the court cast their sentences. In recognition of their regret, Dennis Christian was ordered to do 300 hours of community service and Dave Brown was ordered to do 400. Both men were also ordered to attend counseling. Len Brown was sentenced to two years in prison, but because he was nearly 80, the court also decreed that this would be served as house arrest. Carlisle Young was sentenced to five years in prison. Finally, Mayor Steve Christian was sentenced to three years in prison, and his son Randy was sentenced to the harshest of them all, six years in prison. However, just because they were convicted, it didn't mean that the defendants were going to give up without a fight. Both Christians refused to resign from their posts, and on October 30th, the governor dismissed them both from their roles. The role of interim mayor was filled by Christian's sister, Brenda, until local elections later that year. Ironically, Jay Warren, the acquitted man whose original magistrate position had been replaced by the role of mayor, won the election. On April 18th, 2005, the convicted men from the trial began appeal proceedings in New Zealand. The defense's main argument was that British law had never been properly implemented and enforced on the island. The prosecution, however, had plenty of documentation proving that Pitcairn Islanders had known about British law. They argued that Pitcairn was small enough and secluded enough that it made a perfect sanctuary in which to break the law without outside interference. Testimony from the island secretary also confirmed that the Pitcairn people knew that they were under British law. On May 24, 2005, the court rejected their appeal. On November 27, 2005, another son of Mayor Steve Christian, Sean, who was undergoing his appeal due to related charges against him while living off the island, submitted a new challenge and appeal to the proceedings. The appeal challenged the validity of the trial because it was done as an extension of the New Zealand court, not the British one, and therefore they did not have the proper authority to convict anyone on Pitcairn. It is also worth noting that Sean Christian was also being accused of rape in a separate trial. He had also been found guilty and was set to be sent to Pitcairn to serve his sentence. After passing through various courts of appeals, the Privy Council in London rejected the final appeals of the convicted men on October 30, 2006. They were going to prison. The council quoted the Supreme Court in their judgment, saying, when considering the material placed before us as a whole, we are satisfied that the evidence establishes that at all relevant times, Pitcairn was a developed society in which rape and various sexual offending were known to be criminal. There is no reason to doubt that this knowledge of rape extended to the sexual offending generally, including indecent assault and incest. We find that English administration of justice over Pitcairn Island was not a paper administration operating in an occasional and ad hoc way, but a reality when considering how civil and criminal disputes were dealt with throughout the 20th century. We do not accept the suggestion that Pitcairn may, in some way, be an anarchic or lawless society. Over the years, the roles of island police officer and island magistrate have frequently been of high profile and the law, and the enforcement of the law, have loomed large in Pitcairn affairs. All told, the trial was said to have cost Britain $14 million. According to some, though, even this number was a low estimate.
In November of 2006, the men sentenced to jail time were taken under the care of New Zealand authorities hired to work on the island to Pitcairn's jail, a building that had actually been constructed by many of the men who would now pass their days inside it. This jail had six cells, which could each fit two people, making it for a capacity of 12. Bizarrely, the jail was actually one of the most modern and hospitable buildings on the island. Each room was spacious, had a bed with proper mattress, and its own bathroom with running water, a luxury for Pitcairn. It was built with the intention of converting it into rooms for rent for tourists when no longer needed, and many rooms included some great ocean views. The general atmosphere on the island regarding the sentencing and jailing was somewhat stoic. If the islanders spoke of the matter at all, it was to voice their anger of the situation. General consensus on the island was still that no one deserved to go to prison. Those jailed also expressed their disappointment in the convictions, and in the case of the Christian family, were adamant that the charges had been overblown. Still, the sentences themselves were relatively lenient as far as the rest of the world was concerned, especially since British law carries lifetime convictions for rape. The amount of jailing was still fearsome, however, for Pitcairn residents who relied on the men for manual labor around the island. Some members of Pitcairn's population began to suspect that this was all an intentional plot by the British, an allegation to which we will return next time. Over the next two years, the imprisoned men were allowed occasional release for holidays and to do manual labor, as was suggested at the start of the trial. Some men were allowed to do repairs and to man the longboats. Other than that, though, jail really meant jail, and the men's families had to, in order to communicate with them, buy a stamp at the post office to send a letter there, even though it was just down the hill. By 2008, the men were evaluated by foreign doctors to grant an allowance to continue their sentences at home. After all, with their convicted status, most countries would not allow them entrance, and being trapped on Pitcairn under the eye of New Zealand's rotating law enforcement seemed like prison enough. By the end of the year, corrections officers were due to come to Pitcairn in December and oversee the closing of the jail. However, there was a problem. All the prisoners had been released to home detentions, except for one. The last convict was Brian Young, who had been convicted of assault during the trials abroad in New Zealand and had only been extradited back to Pitcairn to serve his sentence of six and a half years in prison. Brian had been the only inmate at the Pitcairn jail for about six months and so was technically, unintentionally, in solitary confinement. Young was set to return to his home and serve the rest of the sentence that month, on the 9th of December to be exact. However, the parole commission that had been set up in New Zealand didn't allow Young leave. The council's decision was a result of a formality. It had been a year since any psychologist had evaluated Young, and as a result, Young would have to wait for a new evaluation before being dismissed to a home detention. The council said that they would have a conclusion by January 2009, but months passed before they could send out a psychologist to do the evaluation. Now, if you'll recall, the spouses of the convicted islanders were pretty boisterous about the entire situation to begin with, and earlier that year had made multiple requests to the governor that further evaluations be done on behalf of the convicted prisoners. Those requests at the time were denied, citing that the prior assessment had merit. The wives on the island were further exasperated, pointing out that if they had been listened to in the first place, that there'd be no need to delay Young's release. Another point of frustration came with the sighting of the ever-changing jail staff, who were rotated out a few times over the past few years. Every superintendent of the prison had said the prisoners were models of good behavior. 
Young's crimes had occurred over 30 years before his sentencing with no other incident cited, and no one who was living on Pitcairn Island at the time thought Young to be a danger to the community in any way, shape, or form. Part of the concern circled around health and safety issues. Young, who was in his mid-50s at the time, was diabetic and had heart issues. Supplies and food took quite a bit of time to make it to the island after all, and the prison had been expected to be empty by December, so provisions had not been sent to restock the jail. Young was on a special diet that the prison was having trouble keeping, and the wrong type of insulin had been sent to the jail building. To Young's wife, who was feeding Brian from her own pantry, time was of the essence. On March 5th, a New Zealand psychologist sailed to Pitcairn Island to perform the evaluation on Young. He left on March 7th, not leaving any indication of the status of his report or whether or not Young would be allowed to leave the prison and start home detention. There was also no way of knowing when the parole council would receive the report. The governor of the island, who resided in Wellington, New Zealand, traveled to Pitcairn at the same time the psychologist did. During a visit with Young, he was asked for an appeal. The island was met with a response, my hands are tied. On March 8th, the next day, Brian Young was admitted to the clinic due to heart complications. In April, he was finally released and the prison was closed. Though, that wouldn't be the end of Pitcairn's woes. Pitcairn's past decade has not been easy and the coming decades could be even tougher. The island's very survival is under threat. All about that next time on the season finale of Extremities. Extremities is written and produced by PJ Scott Blankenship and myself, Sam Denby. The show is edited by Eric Schneider. The amazing artwork is by Simon Buckmaster. Production help was given by Standard. And lastly, this is a Wendover Productions podcast.